beautiful day outside. Hopefully you get to enjoy it. I know we're having our first Easter celebration of the season this afternoon, so um, excited about that. Excited that the kids will be able to go outside and, uh, and play at said Easter celebration. Uh, it is great, and we do. We really hope you, you, you can. I, I told you this a few weeks ago when we first set those cards out, but, but Christmas Eve service is something that's super, super special to me. Uh, growing up um, wasn't something I necessarily had, and so uh, when, when we found that idea and we're part of it, we just love that moment to, to just stop all the Christmas that we have added to Christmas and just focus on what matters. And then this is the same way uh, with the Easter celebrations and everything else that go on to pause on Good Friday and just simply reflect on that one thing that happened on that one afternoon, really, uh, so very long ago. Um, just such a precious moment to, to pause at the end of a busy work week and really consider that. So we hope that you can you can join us. And if not, we'll, we'll see you back here next Sunday morning um, for a Resurrection Sunday. Uh, fill this place up and celebrate that, that amazing, amazing thing that happened so many years ago. So today is what we call in the church Palm Sunday. It gets that name from the, uh, the acts that are recorded that as Jesus came toward that city of Jerusalem and the parade route that was for him and the, the palm trees, the branches that were cut, placed along the path, waved at him as they shouted Hosanna and those things as we talked about last week. That's all recorded in Luke chapter 19 as Jesus approached that city. And he was unexpectedly, probably at least for the disciples, greeted by this welcoming committee who were rejoicing and praising who they thought would be their political, their military, and their religious Messiah. And last week, we looked at all of those details. We even looked at the moments where, where just after that, Jesus approaches that city, and he was deeply disturbed by not just the moment, the reality that, that soon the people that were honoring him would, would turn on him, but he was also considering the future of Jerusalem and what would happen to that city about 40 years later in 70 AD as the Romans stormed that city, set up embankments around it, closed it off, starved the people inside. It was a terrible, terrible, awful scene that Jesus knew was about to happen to that generation of people. If you didn't get a chance, then we would love for you to go back. If you didn't get to join us last week, to go back and it would be an honor. Anytime people go back and, and watch or visit our site and, and see those messages, it is incredible. Uh, we thank God for every one of those people. We have no idea who they are. We have no idea where they are. And here's the best part. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It could be anyone on planet Earth that picks that up. We don't know how God might be able to use that. So thank you for being a part of that. If you're visiting with us today, or you're just joining us, or you just kind of picked up, like, what on earth are they doing at this church? I'm going to tell you real quick. I just want to fill you in on where we've been and where we're going coming out of Easter. We're on a journey through the entire Gospel of Luke. We're studying every single book, every single chapter and verse of this incredible gospel letter. We're going to take time to look at every event that occurred, but we're doing so in a different way. We're not just going in order, book, chapter, and verse right down the line. We're, we kind of mixed it up a little bit. And what we did was we began looking at a few different themes, the first being the birth of Jesus and John the Baptist and their kind of stories as they started out and how those two stories are tied together through all the gospels, really. Then we began to, to look at Jesus's preparation for ministry, what Jesus did to become 
Jesus, if you will, as we know him. Then we began looking at every single miracle recorded in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus performed except a couple. And that's because we're leaving that for next week. Then once we got done with the miracles, we began the series teaching, going through all of the teachings of Jesus intentionally focused on every single one of those teachings. And then we pause for this Easter series, three weeks, all from the book of Luke. And on April 24th, we're going to resume those teachings of Jesus. These are so important for us, the church. We have to know the truth. We've got to know what Jesus really said, not what society is twisting his words into. We have to know how these words impact our lives to this very day, how they instruct us, how they guide us in our present context. It's so important. So next week, we, we pray that next week is Easter. We, we pray that everyone gathers to celebrate that incredible resurrection. But we too pray that everyone gathers that next week to continue on those lessons that Jesus has given us. They're so important. They're a crucial, crucial part of our faith. With Luke's goal, helping us to be certain certain of the things that we've been taught, not just knowing them, but being absolutely certain of them in such a way that we actually apply them to our lives. And I'm going to read this to you once again, Luke's stated purpose for his entire gospel and ultimately the the, the book of Acts as well that comes after the book of Luke. Verse 1 of chapter 1 says this, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the very first were eyewitnesses. Remember, Luke was not an eyewitness to this. He got all of his information secondhand, likely as he, a lot of it as he traveled around with Paul, interviewing people that had direct contact with Jesus throughout his ministry. And he says, Since I, Luke, myself, have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught, so that you may know. That's the title of our little mini Easter series here, and we pray that all of us and anyone that ever happens upon this will walk away knowing Jesus in the deepest way possible. We pray that you will know him as the one who loves you. And gave his life for you. We pray that you will know him as your creator, as your savior, and yes, as your friend as well, because he's all of those things. That is why we are here today, and that is why we are sharing this incredible story with you. Now, the purpose of the text today is simply this. It is to get us all the way right to the door of Good Friday, right up to the very moment when all the events of Good Friday begin to unfold. So this week, On Friday, we will gather to remember that greatest sacrifice that's ever taken place in all of human history as Jesus willingly, it's an important concept, it wasn't forced upon him, and he intentionally offers himself to die for me and for every one of you as well so that we might in turn have life through him. So please join us. Join us on Friday. Dinner's at 6, service at 7. It's going to be a very, very reflective service focusing just on the one thing, the price that was paid for all of us on that night so that we can celebrate Resurrection Sunday next week together. This has the potential to be a very powerful, powerful week in your life if you choose for it to be. 
what we can study together this week that prepares us for the resurrection next Sunday. Father God, as we dive deep into your word today and we consider all of those events that took place between that Palm Sunday, that moment when you came into town, and then ultimately that upper room where you shared that meal with your closest friends. Father, that's our our goal is to get through this time so that we can walk with you toward that cross on Friday. And remember what you did for us, Father. Please, allow our hearts and minds to be open to your text today, maybe to see something that we've never seen before, or maybe to experience and remember something that impacted us so long ago. But Father, we'd chosen to not think about it and reflect on it recently, and so maybe today we're reminded. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 19. So if you got your Bibles with you or you want to pull the one out from the seat in front of you, chapter 19 of Luke toward the end, verse 45 is where we'll be here in just a moment. Now, Luke doesn't give us all of the timeline. Remember, Luke is order, detail, putting everything there, but he doesn't give us every detail and everything that happened. So I'm going to use just a tiny little bit from the book of Mark, just as a supplement so you know what's happened here since Jesus got to town. Mark tells us in chapter 11, verse 11, that by the time Jesus had gotten to Jerusalem, it was late in the evening. Now, this would have been after the parade. This would have been after Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. He comes into town, and it is getting later in the evening. Mark tells us this, that when Jesus entered Jerusalem on that night, he went to the temple courts. He looked around and and saw everything that was happening. And since it was already late, he left, and he went out to Bethany with the 12. So he would not stay in Jerusalem. That's a, we can do a whole sermon series on that stuff later. But he leaves town, goes away. And that's where we pick up in verse 45 of chapter 19 of Luke. When Jesus entered the temple court, so this would be the next morning, probably. Jesus enters the temple courts. He began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Verse 47, every day, Luke says, Jesus was teaching at the temples, but the chief priests and teachers of the law among, and the leaders among them were already trying to kill him, yet they could not find a way to do it. Why? Because the people hung on every word Jesus said. Now, I just want you to consider the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. He comes into town to this grand, huge welcome. Everybody's celebrating him being there. It's a worship absolutely worthy of a Messiah. Now, he knows what truly lies ahead, but he also knows and recognizes and acknowledges that he's worthy of all of this praise and much more. So he doesn't stop the people at all. He leaves that community. He weeps over the town before he heads in because he knows that the people within this community, even the people that were just celebrating, are ultimately going to reject him, at least for a period of time. And he also knows because he's not accepted as their Messiah, the ultimate change that will take place in all of this community and the destruction, the complete destruction of Jerusalem. Jerusalem and its temple many years later. So now he comes into town that first night. He looks around, evaluates, leaves, gathers himself, comes back the next morning, and he finds his house, his father's house full of people, yes, but people making a profit instead of worshiping and serving the Lord And we might look at it and ask, how could that happen? How could such corruption happen in the church? Has anything changed? Look around at society. 
Back then, though, it was a little different. People would travel a great distance. They had to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover festival, and and they would offer their sacrifices for the Passover festival. But here's the thing. They probably didn't often travel with their sacrifices. It was a long way to go. So they would purchase those items once they got to the temple. So instead of bringing a young lamb or pigeons or whatever from home, they would just purchase those items when they got there. Now, is that evil? Is that wrong? Yeah, probably not. There was probably an element where maybe it was okay. But we could probably also debate how much of this sacrificial offering was actually just religious duty and how much of it was genuine worship of their Savior. Were they doing just what they had to do and convenience had all of it on display for them there so they didn't have to put any effort into it or was it genuine worship? But here's the thing, that's not even what Jesus was talking about. He wasn't talking about the hearts of the people and they're worshiping him at all. He was deeply offended by the fact that the people were being taken advantage of. You see, there was another thing they all had to do. They had to pay the temple tax when they came to Jerusalem to celebrate. But you could only pay the temple tax one way and that was via Hebrew shekels. Well, people didn't carry Hebrew shekels because they lived in the Roman Empire. They only had Roman currency. So there were money changers, as you read about in another gospel early in Jesus' ministry. There were money changers at the temple. So you could turn in your Roman currency, and they would gladly exchange it for a fee to Hebrew shekels. Wonderful how that worked. You see, everybody on those temple grounds was making money, and some of them quite a bit of money. And this greatly offended Jesus. None of those procedures probably offended Jesus all that much. People were trying to do what they knew they were supposed to do according to the law. But the fact they were being taken advantage of and cheated, that was offensive to Jesus. But I think that was even secondary. I think that was the second thing that Jesus was really offended by. I think the top thing, the greatest reason he was offended is revealed in the text that he quotes. He quotes from Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11 when he is talking to them. The temple courts were a huge area outside of the temple. The temple was actually very, 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 very small. Only a few people could fit in there and most people weren't allowed in there. So the temple courts was this huge area capable of holding thousands and thousands of people. Why? What was its purpose? For people to come and worship. That was its purpose purpose. They were to gather and worship. They were not to come into the temple courts to buy and sell. And this would have been the thing that he was most offended by. It was filled with people making money rather than people worshiping their God. This was the heart of Jesus for his father and for his temple. So he cleaned it up just a bit. Kind of made a mess of things, but he he cleaned things up, scared people off just for a minute. But here's what's really strange. Luke's transition It says that he does this, and the very next sentence says, but the next day, every day, in fact, Jesus is teaching. Where? Right there. In those same temple courts, he comes right back in, and he just starts teaching as if nothing ever happened. One day, he picks up the place. The next day, he's back to teaching in the same temple courts, and it says every day he comes back, the people can't get enough. They can't get enough of what he's saying. They can't get enough of listening. There's something different about the way he talks. There's something different about the way he communicates to them. There's something different about what he's saying, even though most of what he's saying has actually already been told to them before. It's just told to them in a new way. People can't get enough. But the religious leaders, well, now they're on the other end of the spectrum. They've had enough. And their intentions now are very deliberate. Their intention is to kill Jesus. That's their stated goal. Now, talk about a rough crowd. As Jesus would come in to speak to the people each and every time, this is what he was dealing with. All the people in the front couldn't get enough. They were hanging on every word. 
Luke tells us. In the back, in the back were these guys. Keep talking. Angry faced, arms crossed, staring at Jesus. In their minds thinking, how can we kill that guy? That's the crowd Jesus is speaking to every day. Just ponder that for a moment as you think about it. This man that they want to get rid of, this man has now found a way to explain things to people in a way that they could understand. This man who has been healing every condition known to man, this man who has been freeing people from their former ways of life and not asking for anything in return? I see the problem they had with him. Instead of choosing to follow his lead, they decided to lie about him. They decided to try to twist his words against him. They tried to turn the people against him. And for three days later on in the week, that did all work quite well. I want you to consider today what the world is trying to do to Jesus. Remember, Satan is in control of a lot of this place in which we live. And he knows that the words of Jesus are as true today in 2022 as they were when the people were hanging on every word he spoke in the temple courts. He knows, he already knows that Jesus paid the price to prove who exactly he is to everyone. Satan also knows his fate, and he knows the fate of everyone that chooses not to accept the grace of Jesus and place their hope and faith and trust in Jesus. So to this very day, he uses this world to try to turn people against Jesus. So what does the world do? Well, the world lies a lot about Jesus. The world loves to twist the words of Jesus, take them out of context, discredit them as ideas from a former way of life and a former generation that couldn't possibly work today. The world has convinced you that, well, if you want to believe in Jesus, okay, maybe he existed, maybe he was a good teacher, maybe he was some kind of human rights activist at best, but there's no way he was God because after all, Satan doesn't want you to believe that there is a God. Oh, but if there is a God, well, maybe the God is you. Welcome to the world in which we live. Nothing changes. And that is why it is so important that we study the words of Jesus specifically and absolutely together so that we know for certain the things because Satan does not want us to know for sure that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. He does not want you to come to know him as your Savior and Lord and ruler of your life. <laughs> he doesn't want you to know him as your Redeemer, and he really doesn't want you to know him as your friend. That's way too far. So he wants to create doubt. He wants to create uncertainty. He wants your faith, the teachings of Jesus, to be optional at best, even if you claim to be a follower of Christ. Maybe you could follow when it's convenient for you to follow, but certainly not when your feelings go against whatever Jesus happened to have said so long ago. That's why we must know exactly. Church, are we hanging on every word of Jesus? When you and I open up the text for ourselves and we read it, do we read those words and just, oh, I long to be this. I long to follow you in this way. Jesus, give me the strength, the power, the courage to act in this way toward others. Does, do our lives reflect his goodness and his glory? Are we sharing his grace and his mercy and forgiveness with the lost and dying world around us? They are deceived, absolutely. 
And the words of teaching, they, the words and teachings of Jesus, they will absolutely attract people to him. How will they experience those? Well, they will experience those through you. That's where people will be drawn to him is through our lives, living his word out. And so today what we're going to do is I told you we're going to walk right up to Friday, right up to the garden is where we're going. So we're going to finish with today with what really is a very famous text for a lot of people. You might not have heard it or maybe you haven't heard it in a long time, but it's the text that takes us right up to Good Friday. I really am excited about Good Friday. I love that time together. Luke 22. So turn a page probably is all you'll have to do in your, in your Bibles. Luke 22, beginning in verse 1, now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. This is the same festival marking the same approximate dates, but the same festival that the, Egypt, that the Hebrews celebrated all the way back just before they left Egypt. And it says, and the chief priests and teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might be able to betray Jesus. Of course, they were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Now, there's a lot of things to consider about this transaction. We don't have time to consider them all, so let's just look at a couple little ones. The Jewish leaders had been searching, looking, trying to find a, a crack in the armor, if you will, a way to get on the inside of Jesus for a long time, and they failed at every turn. I wonder, what were all the different ways they attempted before they got to Judas? Because when you read this, the way it reads, this was actually whose idea? Well, this is Judas's idea. This was his plan to go to them to see how he might be able to help them accomplish their goals. Now, we don't know exactly what Judas knew or didn't know about what their intended purposes were, but Judas sought them out. How could Judas, how after three years of traveling with Jesus, seeing every miracle, seeing, hearing every teaching, witnessing the compassion, the love, being a beneficiary of the things of Jesus. All of this time, listening to the heart of Jesus for his God and for his people and all of humanity, really. How could he be a part of all of this? And then just like that, walk up and offer himself as the pawn to carry out this plan to get rid of Jesus. Now, when you look at it from that perspective, it seems so impossible that someone could even think about ever doing that. But is it really? Is it really? See, the explanation is actually quite simple. It goes back to a teaching that we did just a few weeks ago from Luke chapter 6. Jesus said these words, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep, laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood came, the torrent struck the house, but it could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without foundation. The moment the torrent struck the house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. You see, Judas had heard the words. He'd watched the actions. He'd even heard the warnings that Jesus gave them. He probably chimed in with everyone else as they offered their praise and cried out, Lord, Lord. But you see, Judas wasn't doing what Jesus said. And now Judas finds himself without any foundation at all. He never put any of Jesus's teachings into practice, and now he faces a temptation 
money. Money. We don't know what Judas left behind to follow Jesus. It's not really recorded anywhere what Judas was prior to following Jesus. But we can probably guess he wasn't a very wealthy person, whatever he had done. And he left whatever behind to thought what he, he to pursue what he thought was going to be a lifestyle of power, of influence, certainly wealth, and maybe even fame, right? A man who was now disappointed that Jesus in his time together had not provided what he thought he should have been given. A man who sees a way now to be rewarded for his relationship with Jesus when in reality he didn't find his relationship with Jesus to be all that rewarding. So it says Satan entered Judas. Whatever had kept Judas prior to this moment from leaving or betraying Jesus, now that was set aside. And Judas fully gave in to his sinful nature. He was not forced to do this. This was his choice. Judas proves in this moment to not be a, a genuine believer. He was a fake. He was a fraud. In essence, here's what he did. He showed up to church every Sunday, but didn't take anything home. He never fully committed to Jesus. He showed up at all the gatherings, the teachings, and everything else, but he never changed. And the scary part about that is, that could be me. Could be you. Don't let it. Don't let it. If you've been attending church maybe your entire life, but you've still not fully given your life over to Jesus, do so now, today. Don't wait any longer. We don't know when that torrent is coming to strike us and knock us off. If we don't have that foundation, we may be lost forever. <laughs> no one wants that to happen to anyone here. Now, as this scene unfolds, this famous, famous scene from Scripture, you always must remember who's there. Judas. Judas is present the entire time throughout most of this entire scene. He is sitting there at the table with Jesus, just like you and I are sitting here with Jesus today and here in a moment around his very table as well as we celebrate communion. Verse 7, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Not a lot of direction there from Jesus. So they asked, where? Where do you want us to go to prepare it? Good question, Jesus said. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Following him, follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover meal with my disciples. He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. I want to pause there just for a second. One of the things we don't think about Jesus, we think about Jesus being God like all the time, which he is, but he's also fully human. And so he was fully human and he was fully planning all of this. At some point earlier in the week, Jesus had gone out in town. He found a place to stay. He'd met with someone. He worked out all the details to get it all put in place. All the disciples had to do was follow the plan, and it was there. Could he have done that miraculously, divinely, just planted those things in somebody's mind? He could have, but I don't think he did. I really think he intentionally went to people. This was one of his disciples. This is one of his followers that he found to borrow this place from that would be safe and secure. And he gives this, the, the disciples, you might read the description and think, oh, what's the big deal? They ask a question, where, how will we find this place? We're in a city packed with hundreds of thousands of people celebrating the Passover. How will we find an, an, a vacant building? And he said, well, look for the guy carrying water. There was only one, probably, because who carried the water? The women. Yeah, that's a sign. Hey, there's a guy. There's a dude carrying water. Oh, that's probably the one because everyone else is a woman carrying the water. Yeah, he gave them very practical. It's amazing, those simple little details that drew the disciples in. And with every single one, 
They were just more convinced that Jesus was who he said he was, as should we be, to know for certain, to know for certain. In verse 13, of course, they found everything exactly as Jesus had told them, just as they could prepare for the Passover. The other Gospels reveal a couple other important details. It says the disciples are all there, and then Jesus shows up, and what are they doing? Oh, they're all fighting and arguing about who's the greatest. They still haven't put that argument aside. So this is the time where Jesus kind of settles that dispute once and for all. And he doesn't really speak to them. He just grabs the water and the towel and he goes around and he humbles himself before every single one of them, including Judas, and washes their feet. You've got to let that sink in. Jesus knows the man who's already sold him out. He knows him. He looks him in the eye and he bows down before him. And that wasn't even enough to change Judas's mind or heart. Think of it. Think of it. Instead, moments later, after this incredible act, they begin celebrating this Passover meal together. And at some point in the conversation, Jesus reveals that one of the men sitting around this table will betray him. And Matthew records an interesting little statement. Judas speaks up. <laughs> Not me. <laughs> no, I couldn't be. Yeah. The guts, right? <laughs> My goodness, how could he do? I mean, if that were me, where would you have been? If that were you, and Jesus, if Jesus knows you know and knows, you'd like crawl under the table, hid something, right? And Jesus, not me, couldn't be me, Jesus. Think of the audacity to that. Is there anything different? We come and we gather and we worship and we celebrate, but we leave here and deny him by our lifestyles. Is there any different? Is there anything different? I would say no. When the hour came, verse 14, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Therefore, after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this, divide it among you, for I tell you I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes and he took the bread and he gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We will do that here shortly. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The son of man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. And a dispute arose among them. And we don't know if this is the same dispute, if this is a different dispute as Luke recording the same thing that already happened as Jesus arrived. Or did they have another dispute later? Quite possibly they could have. They wouldn't give it up. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who's at the table or the one who serves? I is not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my Father conferred one upon me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he calls out Simon specifically. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you 
I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But Simon replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison, even to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you know me. And then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without a purse or bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, nothing at all, they replied. But he said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it. And if you own a bag, bring it. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. As it is written, he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciple said, see, Lord, here are two swords. Enough, he replied. Everything is about to change. Everything is about to change for the closest followers of Jesus. He will soon be taken from them. They have to be ready. Not to fight, not to attack, but to defend themselves and the truth that they have been taught. They must be able to provide for one another, to protect one another, because times are about to get very, very hard very, very soon. Jesus will continue to be with them for all eternity, but not in the way they've come to know. His physical presence will not be there. So he's asking them to be prepared for what lies ahead. Peter is brought up in the middle there. You see, Peter is also tempted here shortly, just like Judas. But Peter's foundation was there. It was solid. It was on the rock. Did he fall absolutely harder than you could imagine? But guess what? He was also brought right back in because his foundation was in the right place. It's no different for us today. (laughs) Jesus has given us the exact same teachings he gave to the disciples up to this moment. Nothing different. He gave them the exact same tools. He even gives us now and them later the spirit to dwell within us, to guide us, to protect us, his word, his spirit to inspire us, to challenge us. In this world, it is an incredible thing his faithfulness to trust in, his mercy and his grace to rely upon. All of this, he gives us all of this so that we may know, truly know him. Do you? Do you truly know him? Or is church always just something that you did, just something you went to, just an event to experience? Or do you truly know him? Have you fully given your life to him? Do you trust it to him, all of it? Have you given him your sin and your shame, your career and your family? None of us want to be Judas, clearly, but it's awful easy to just listen and not let the words of Jesus change us completely. The more certain we are of these truths, the more we will want to live for him. Will we still fall short? Yes. Perfection is not a goal to be obtained in this life. It is only available in the next with him when he perfects us. Till then, our goal is to strive to be more and more like him. The more we long to do this, the more we will long to share who he is with others. The more we will long to share what he has done in us with others others, our lives, how it is impacted by Jesus. It is an incredible story of our encounter with Jesus. And it doesn't matter what your story is. For some of you, you are blessed to be brought up within the church and your story isn't all that extravagant. You might even think it's kind of boring. Well, you know what? It's not. 
Your story was ordained by God himself for you to share with others and bring people to him. The reality is most people don't have that story. A lot of people have stories that are difficult. There have been some tough times. You might even feel like your story is too much. It's too terrible to even share. Well, once again, I'm sorry, but you're wrong. When God is ready for you to share your story, he will make a way. And he will use your story, whatever it has been to this point, he will use it in a way to bring glory and honor to him. So don't be afraid of sharing it. You and your story can be redeemed. And your story can forever be changed by the creator of your story, the author of life, if we allow him to transform us today. We've got this incredible opportunity ahead of us. The world around us is starving. They are searching for truth. I was having a conversation with someone, I can't remember, yesterday, the day before, and we were talking about the world and life and all the crazy things happening and all that stuff. And I said, you know what? One of the biggest selling points, and I hate using that word, but it's a word that makes sense in our culture. The biggest selling point for Jesus is simply this. His story hasn't changed and it never will. I don't care what scientific fact you believe. I don't care whatever, this, that, that. It's all changed. I can go back 10, 20, 30, 50, 100,000 years, and it was different then than it is now. His story hasn't changed one bit. It's the only thing that they could come to believe in that will never change. And in a world where people are tired of everything changing and not knowing which way is up, boy, if we could just give them some truth that's absolute and never changes, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, how that would change their eternity and their life here on this earth. We gotta share it. We gotta share it. And everybody this next week is gonna be celebrating this thing called Easter anyway. We know the story behind Easter. We've got a chance. We've got a chance to share with them this truth. Don't miss this chance. Don't miss this moment. Fill in every one of these seats and more and online and we'll put chairs outside. I'll go preach from outside. It's a wireless mic. You can hear me anywhere. Don't care. Father God, as we come before you this morning and here in a minute, celebrate this incredible communion that you've given us. May we never lose sight of those around us that have been deceived by this world. Father, any more people that have been so deceived that they don't even know you exist. It's not that they ignore you. It's not that they, they've chosen not to believe in you. It's just you're not even an option on their table right now because they don't know about you. Father, we know you placed something inside of them to draw them in your direction. And Father, you placed all of us around them to help with that process. And this, this season is perfect to begin to reach out to them and share with them how you've changed our lives. It's our story of what you've done in us that will make you real initially to them. To see that there is some truth to this. There's something out there that they don't know yet, but there's something for sure there and we can prove it in our lives so that they have a desire to find out more and ultimately to experience you within their own. Fathers, we gather on a Sunday morning in person and online. So many of us have gathered faithfully for so many years. What an honor it is to do that. But Father, let none of us ever leave this place as Judas did, every meeting with the disciples, not truly ever believing in you, not willing to offer everything over to you. Father, we live in a world where, as we've seen recently, our foundations, they're gonna get shaken. Our houses may come falling down. But Father, when we are on the rock, Father, you will protect us. 
You will help us through these storms of this life. And when we feel like everything has come crashing down, you will sustain us. And the most important things will remain. Father, if there's people today that may have long known you, but have not come to fully place their life, maybe there's still one element that they've held on to so tightly for so long, I pray this morning is the day they release that, that your spirit allows them the freedom to finally let that go. Maybe it's some guilt or shame from the past. Whatever it is, just allow them to have that over into your court, your world. You've taken care of that. You took it to the cross that we're gonna talk about on Friday so that we don't have to bear it any longer. Give us the strength and the courage to admit our faults and our weaknesses before you so that we can fully, fully rely on your power in our lives. Father, we love you.